This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Most of us understand the importance of virtual reality right now and the impact that it will have in the future. But a new book takes a look at the impact of it, not just from what we experience in business, but how our lives, our culture and more will be influenced by it, by virtual reality in the future. It is titled Future Presence, How Virtual Reality is Changing Human Connection, Intimacy, and the Limits of Ordinary Life. The author is Peter Rubin, who also, by the way, is an editor at Wired Magazine, and it's a pleasure to have Peter joining us right now. Peter, welcome. Thanks so much, Dan. Great to be here. So, I mean, give us the backstory on, on, on doing a book like this. Obviously, when you think about VR, everybody kind of understands the role that it is playing to a degree right now, but I think still a lot of people don't really grasp how much it will impact us in the future. That's absolutely right. And a lot of hay has been made, of course, like you said, of its, of its business and enterprise applications. I'm a, I'm a culture reporter and editor, and the, the conversation around VR on the cultural side has always been about its unique ability to create empathy in people. By experiencing someone else's life, it, it argues you kind of have a new perspective and you're able to kind of move through the world as a better person. And that, that is true. But I also thought that based on what I've been experiencing and what I've been reporting for the past five years, it doesn't quite go far enough. And in fact, rather than just being kind of a clinical insight into another person's experience, it really forges these kind of incredible emotional connections by the social dynamics that happen when you're in VR with other people. And so the the central argument of the book is the idea that empathy doesn't go quite far enough, and VR's true magic ability is the, uh, the ability to induce intimacy between people. So in in terms of that human connection, I I mean, to a degree, we see it uh, in the video games that we play with all the connection now being able to play with with other people around the globe. But where is that connection? Do you see really going to explode in, in the next several years? Well, games are a part of that, and certainly the the social experiences that are built on some sort of recognizable game format are some of the early leaders in this. But the most remarkable stuff that's happening, the most ambitious multi-user VR world, leave gaming behind, and they give the user the ability to kind of create worlds of their own. So by combining users' creativity and the ability to create the characters that they are, or rather how they represent themselves, and then the ability to share these experiences, you're turning VR from a sort of novelty where you go and you do one marvelous thing, and then you wonder what's next, and then you go do this other marvelous thing, and they're all by yourself, into something that is more of a substrate. It's not the experience itself. It's the background for the experience. So that's really where this is happening in places. Uh, these are names that, that readers may not be familiar with. There are worlds like Rec Room and VR Chat and High Fidelity and Alt Space. And these are places that have really fervent user bases. And we're not in the millions, let alone billions of users, but we are in the thousands of users. And we are already in the age where there are communities that are springing up and friendships and romances and even marriages have resulted from these worlds. 
We are joined by Peter Rubin, who is the author of the book, Future Presence, How Virtual Reality is Changing Human Connection, Intimacy, and the Limits of Ordinary Life. Uh, Peter is also uh, an editor at Wired Magazine. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Join us right now. Again, 844-942-7866 is the phone number for you to join in. Or if you would like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You know, what's what's interesting about it right now and, and uh, playing off of uh, playing off of something that uh, you said just a second ago, Peter, uh, is the fact that seemingly what it, it feels like we are having because of some of these connections is that we are all almost having that next generation of social media platform uh, because of the uh, because of the use of, of VR in a lot of these realms. Is that safe to say? That's absolutely beginning to happen, and and part of that is the reason that you know even companies like Facebook are jumping into this world. And so you can look at Spaces, which is Facebook's first stab at a social VR environment, as almost being Facebook 1.5 in the sense that it leverages the the cultural ubiquity that Facebook has and and our choice as users to kind of give our our photo, store our photos on there and store our friendships and our relationships on there. So it reconnects people that we're already Facebook friends with, but it does so in, in what's called an embodied way, meaning that when we're in VR as ourselves, yeah. we're not just a disembodied camera. We actually have hands and faces and heads, and those are being tracked, and you can communicate with people in all kinds of ways, including nonverbal cues, which have, have never been a part of any sort of mediated digital social communication before. So then let's take it to the next step, because part of of the uh, of the title uh, involves intimacy. And I'd be interested to know how how that is going to play out as we move forward. Oh, well, it already is. I mean, a a chief ingredient of the intimacy in virtual reality begins with and is by no means the end, but begins with the fact that you can have eye contact. And as eye tracking gets into headsets in the next year or so, the ability to have our actual gaze mirrored in, in virtual reality, meaning, you know, everything from blinks to winks to where we are actually looking. You know, we can already make eye contact with people, but when you bring in even more naturalistic cues, that creates the ability to to turn what happens in VR into something that's much more like real life, including the fact that our memories of VR right now are indistinguishable from our real life memories. It's not like looking at a photo. It's not like anything we've ever experienced before. The Because you have a real life memory of something you've done in VR in a fantastic environment, whether it's something as pedestrian as just under a starry sky or you're, you're on the surface of Mars or you're floating over Central Park, your memory is still spending quality time with this other person or these other people in this magical place. And then you couple that with how, as is probably no surprise, the adult industry uh, has taken note of VR and is creating a lot of content to leverage VR's particular traits. Uh, You are seeing this kind of completely unprecedented revolution in how they're thinking about people's fantasies. 
You also talk about memories as well, and and I find that interesting. That obviously, when we talk about real life memories, uh, you know, there is a level that uh, that we are all able to go to. But is that going to even increase uh, the potential of memory moving forward with uh, with the realm that VR may play? It certainly helps people with with memory issues, uh, much in this in, in the way that VR therapeutic applications kind of hinge on the ability to do exercises again and again and again. That's why it's such a wonderful sports training tool. That's why it's so good for, uh, for PTSD and phobia therapy. But what's fascinating is, is one study that was done in Germany uh, about a year, 18 months ago, is they took people and they showed them GoPro footage of a motorcycle ride through the countryside. And they showed half of the people the footage on a giant TV just right in front of them. And they showed the other half of the people the footage in a VR headset and had yeah. those people put their hands on motorcycle handlebars. Now, what they found in memory tests after that, uh, after, after showing everyone the footage, is not just that the people in VR performed better on identifying what photos were taken from the ride that they had, quote, been on, but that they, the people who had done this in VR actually took a tick longer to answer. And what that tells us is that where they were accessing the memories from took a tiny bit longer, and it's consistent with the idea that the memories of having done it in VR were stored in the same place and accessed in the same way by the brain as memories that we have in real life. So it's not like looking at a photo at all. So any sort of memory exercise that's done by drilling people with, with showing things, uh, showing them the same images again and again and again, that's completely transformed by what VR does. 844-942-7866 is the number uh, to join in with your comments or questions. Uh, the book is Future Presence. Peter Rubin is our guest. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. One of the things that, that we have touched on in the past, uh, talking about this realm on this show, and you bring it up as well, is that we're talking about something that has so much potential benefit in so many different sectors, one being the medical community. We touched on it a little bit, uh, but you also talk about the fact that uh, in terms of people who see themselves as introverts, this is something that has the potential to have huge benefits for. It's absolutely remarkable. I mean, we thought of the Internet, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago as a thing that would help people kind of come out of their shells and find communities where they, they maybe hadn't been able to. And that's certainly happening. But those those events are, are amplified. Uh, you know, the benefits are amplified in VR. And some of that is because what virtual reality does is it finds a middle ground between the absolute anonymity that people are able to have on the Internet and the, the kind of slow road to disclosure and intimacy that we have in real life. Obviously, it takes people a long time to feel comfortable around each other in real life. But when they do, their true self really comes out and you confide in people and you know what real closeness feels like. And on the other side, on the Internet, if you're completely anonymous, a lot of people feel emboldened to, 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 to disclose everything to strangers. But then when you meet in real life, the person, you know, if you do, the person that you meet may have nothing to do with the mental image that you've built up of this person. Because when you're on the internet, you're almost a character. You kind of curate the self that you give to other people. And what happens in VR is, is this kind of remarkable middle ground where because your rational brain is telling you that you're someplace where the stakes are lower and it doesn't matter, you feel a little more confident that you might otherwise. But 
your real self comes through because your hands are tracked and your head is tracked and your non your your mannerisms really come out and the nonverbal cues really come out. So for the right. people that have become close friends in VR and then meet in real life, there's none of that awkwardness because you know that person. You know the way they hold their hand to their face when they're thinking about something or the way they tilt their chin. All of that stuff comes through in VR. And when you meet that person in real life, it just uh, it just intensifies the idea that you already know them. But I, I would imagine that there will be situations, there probably are right now, uh, where you develop that, that connection with somebody and then the connection in real life is not what it, I mean, that's like everything in life. And I would imagine there are other aspects to it that, that have to be concerning, you know, watchful areas uh, where VR will be uh, potentially having a negative impact. Oh, 100 percent. There, there are two areas that I really think are, are ones that we need to kind of get out in front. Some, some is already happening and some hasn't reared its head yet. The one that we've already seen in multi-user VR uh, is, is the idea, just as it is on the Internet, of harassment and toxic behavior. Yeah. Because when you lob a slur at someone or when someone lobs a slur at someone else on Twitter or is cruel to them in an Instagram comment or yells at them when they're playing uh, an Xbox game to together uh, online, those are harmful and they're hurtful, but they're so much more visceral in VR because it's one person physically walking up to another person. Personal space is a very real thing in virtual reality, and it's difficult to describe to someone if they haven't experienced this before. But you're no longer just watching something through a screen in VR. You are inside the screen. And so because you're embodied and that other person is embodied, meaning they, they have a body, Personal space uh, is a thing. So, so any toxic behavior, any harassing behavior, or any verbal abuse, or even groping, is a million times more visceral. Uh, the sins of the internet have the ability to be amplified in VR in a terrible, terrible way. So that's something that the people who are creating these platforms are certainly aware of and are building tools for users. But it needs to go much, much. Uh, kind of much more long range than that. They really need to anticipate abuses of this. And, and the other way that you can see this going wrong is obviously we've all heard of catfishing as this sort of online phenomenon where you pretend to be someone you're not. Sure. You gain someone else's trust. You take advantage of them. We're, we haven't seen that yet in VR, but it does stand to reason that it will happen. And it will happen in ways that are potentially much more harmful. You can certainly imagine as a senior generation starts using VR and, and someone appears to them in a, in a multi-user space and says, oh, it's me, it's your grandson. I just wanted to make sure that, that you know, I had your I had your bank's routing number so I could, yeah. I could send you a little gift for your birthday, yeah, right? Of and course. So fraud in VR is going to be absolutely uh, unbelievably harmful. So whether it's a regulatory approach uh, or, or something that's explicitly legislated, I'm not sure what the solution is, but we need to get out in front of this before it becomes a real problem. And, and obviously the companies that are involved in developing all these technologies uh, seemingly have to be aware of, of the negative side as well as the positive side so that they can game plan for how to be able to potentially block these these types of issues or at least deal with them when they happen. Absolutely. I mean, everyone saw what happened with the Internet, and no one wants to see that same movie again. And so whether it's, it's issues of abuse and harassment or it's issues of criminal fraud, I mean, the Nigerian print scam, imagine that in VR. Uh, and so 
I don't know that there is a way to 100% prevent everything before it happens, and there's going to be a cat-and-mouse game with bad actors, just like there always is. But ideally, if security is enough of a concern, and more importantly, authentication and verification are enough of a concern, that's going to be what we need to get out ahead of this. We already talk about verifying identities online. What we haven't talked about is verifying and authenticating experiences online. These devices will get to a point where you can fool someone who's wearing a, you know, uh, some sort of wearable device that mm-hmm. lets them see the real world, that what they're seeing may be real, maybe may not. So we will get to a point in the next decade or two where we're going to need to find some sort of authentication solution for experiences, not just identities. Well, and, and seemingly then that also brings up the, the concern around trust uh, that uh, I think a lot of consumers would normally have with some sort of entity that has been sold that is you know is being used in in the world of VR that consumer buys that item whether it be a game whatever because they have a trust that that it is you know on the level all the time that has to also be a, a worrisome area not necessarily of somebody like a hacker but of the companies themselves Oh, right now with Facebook in the news the way it is, you can imagine the conversation that's happening around privacy policies in VR. And as the eye-tracking technology that I mentioned gets into headsets, imagine an advertiser salivating over the idea that they wouldn't just get to see where a person's what a person's eyes are doing, what they're looking at, how long they're looking at it. But then the next step past that, as facial reactions in real time get mapped into your VR avatar, how you react to things, that's a treasure trove of psychographic data mm-hmm. that they have wanted to get their hands on for decades. So it's incumbent upon the, the, the hardware vendors, the people who create the eye-tracking technology, and certainly the software developers to be in lockstep about this. This has to be locked down uh, for user data to stay on the device, not to be stored. Not. What is the next thing? What is the next thing that most likely we will see in the, in the short term that in VR that will be that that I, I want to say incredible shift, but it will be a shift that will probably catch a lot of people's attention. The important shift, and we're just at the dawn of this, is this third technology or this third generation sort of kind of category of device is finally coming to market. We already know VR as being these very lightweight devices that you can slap a smartphone into or really high-powered things that you need a high-powered PC uh, to, to cable into. And so these so-called standalone devices are finally coming to market in the U.S. Uh, Oculus, which is owned by Facebook, is creating a lightweight one that's just about to come out called the Oculus Go. And then you have other ones coming out from Lenovo and HTC. And what these will do uh, as they become more powerful, and certainly the ones later this year will be more powerful, is they do away with cords. They do away with phones. It's an all-in-one device. All you have to do is turn it on, and you have a high-powered, strong, stable VR experience. And the important thing about that isn't just ease of use, but it's shareability. So VR has, has gone from this thing that you either need you know, a dedicated rig in a dedicated room in your house, or you have this kind of unsatisfying, unstable mobile experience, to something that's, that's a, a really happy middle ground between the two. So I think we're going to see user curiosity and market penetration really begin to ramp up over the next year. Great having you on the show with us today, Peter. All the best with the book. It's a it's a fantastic look into what we're going to see coming up in the future. Uh, and, and congratulations to you. Thanks so much, Dan. Great being here. Thank you. Again, the book is Future Presence, How Virtual Reality is Changing Human Connection, Intimacy, 
and the Limits of Ordinary Life. Peter Rubin is the author of the book. He is an editor at Wired Magazine, and the book is available uh, out in bookstores and online for your purchase right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 